For August 24th, 2020, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 634. Article 1. Be excellent to each other. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are the most righteous band that has ever screamed into microphones in a a most cacophonous fashion, dude. Uh, We are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are talking about uh, the things that we love, the movies that we love uh, in the case of this week's particular episode. I am Matthew Bernard Rather Esquire. I'm joined by my my most intelligent friend, Mark uh, Peter Fenzel. Mark Peter Fenzel? No, no, sorry. I did. I was going back. I got, I got the. I got the alphabetical order wrong, uh, largely because Mark's avatar was staring at me and skyping the well, thing. Socrates <laughs> says the beginning of wisdom is knowing that you know nothing, right? <laughs> Whoa! That uh, that that is that is Pete Peter Fenzel, and. Yes. Uh, <laughs> And also, my other most intelligent friend, Mr. Peter Mark Lee. Whoa, Matthew. Should we learn to play our instruments? (laughs) Finally, after all these years? 40 years on this planet, and I still don't know how to play mine. So that's, uh, that's, I think, just fine. Okay, if you haven't picked it up. Yet for this week, we are talking together about uh, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Uh, the reason that we're doing this is because Bill and Ted Face the Music comes out next week on uh, PVOD, <laughs> Premium Video on Demand. And, you know, just in case you need to start, uh, just in case you need to start saving money in order to buy your ticket for that, we don't often call our shot on this, but we are going to uh, focus next week on Bill and Ted face the music. So uh, we thought we would do a little uh, we'd do a little research and talk about uh, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Now, you may be aware that there is also a second film in the series, a middle film, um, though, you know, it was like I think they're like 90 and 91 or 89 and 91 or something like that, 91 and 92. Um, so it's it's, you know, probably not middle. It's more like two beginning films and then uh face the music but we're doing um uh we're we're pete and i have uh have yet to schedule it but we intend also to talk about bill and ted's bogus journey this uh week in a, a premium edition in a uh overthinking it you know overthinking it extra uh podcast that we will do um that we'll record this week and release in the members area for those who are members of overthinking it. We haven't flogged the, the membership uh, program in a while, but it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like Patreon, except we were doing it before it was cool. Um, 
and uh, and also we're not cool. But uh, if you would like to support what we do, if you like this podcast and would like to support it with uh, uh, about a buck an episode, five bucks a month, you can go to overthinkingit.com slash join. There's a link in the show notes for this episode and every episode. Uh, go to overthinkingit.com slash join. Sign up there to become a member of Overthinking It. You will get the, uh, the satisfaction of knowing uh, that you are supporting something cool, something most excellent, like Overthinking It. And uh, also, you know, uh, you will have our gratitude, which is immense. And you will also get some uh, cool extra stuff in the members area. We have, uh, you know, uh, the question of the week. We haven't done one in a while, but hopefully this bonus episode makes up for that. Um, you know, the, the uh, question of the week, which we do periodically, you'll have access to various miscellaneous one-off podcasts that we've done uh, in the past. You'll have access to the Pete cast which is pete talking into a microphone for an hour they're glorious and they are on they're on fantastic like every single pete cast uh the ones on things that i did not know about i was introduced to all of them and i liked them um all of the things so the pete cast not only is an hour of entertainment but it's a uh it's a world of uh exploration and discovery as well and uh when they make another venom movie i'll do another one <laughs> Um, I mean, they made several Venom movies at the same time in that one film that they <laughs> that they released. So that was, and uh, also all the premium audio, all the uh, the overviews, the uh, the nineteen eighty four book club, which was a premium product, the all that stuff that we did, uh, the members get for free. So uh, if you are a member. Um, Hey, head into the members area. Just go, go get your stuff and download your, your overview commentaries and download your, you know, 1984 book club. And, uh, if you're not a member, overthinkingit.com slash join. All right. Thanks for bearing, bearing with that. We just, uh, appreciate your support and we rely on it. Cool. So let's, uh, let's, uh, dive in to Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Mark, you had not seen this film before. This is a film about, uh, it's a time travel kind of comic adventure movie. Um, the, the premise is set up, the premise is set up in like, a fairly straightforward fashion as uh, Bill and Ted's history teacher looks them in the eye and says, you have to do your history project by tomorrow, which sets up exactly who, what, when, where, why, and how. <laughs> like, when well, not how. It sets up who, are, what, when, where, and why uh, immediately. And the how is supplied by George Carlin, who shows up in a time-traveling phone booth Um and uh, the lads go on a merry chase through history uh, and collect historical figures who they use for their presentation in San Dimas, California. Also, they talk like, I mean, they're, they're way too inland to really be surfers, but like they talk like skaters or they talk like uh, California dudes. Uh, Mark, this was your first time watching the film. What were your initial impressions? Um, I enjoyed it. Uh, immensely uh i was afraid it was gonna be something like have we talked about how i saw goonies only as an adult and was kind of disappointed by that given all of the uh the, the cultural cash that that um movie carried oh wow um, I, I i you know i might have just committed sacrilege there uh the disparaging goonies goonies never say die except uh, when they do say die um so i was afraid i was gonna have that sort of reaction but no uh quite the opposite of it so just a little bit of context here right like i i think i could be mistaken but i think this movie is like very influential and highly well known amongst our generation right this movie came out in 1989 uh it showed teenagers and so we were probably like in middle school 
age or, or perhaps a little bit younger than that, meaning that like, you know, in the aspirational way that preteens read 17 magazine, like we were very much target audience for this sort of thing. Um, and so it was something that felt edgy. Um, it uh, had, you know, was, was replete with catchphrases. No way. Excellent. Uh, on, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, it, I just remember things like, you know, that that California. I remember I grew up in Alabama. Right. But like I, I think there was like a, a solid month or two uh, in elementary school when everyone was talking with a California accent um, because of this movie. Um, and then in particular, like Socrates um, was, uh, uh, you know, hilarious then and remains pretty damn funny now. Um, so I, I grew up with all this. Right. And, uh, you know, and it's referenced. Uh, I don't know. If constantly, it, it is frequently frequently referenced in other media uh, has been in the 90s, in the 2000s. And now here we are in the, in the 2010s and, and then at the beginning of the 2020s and so it's always been out there and uh you know in keanu reeves we've talked a lot about keanu reeves on this podcast uh um, most recently i think in the context of um always be my maybe and his uh, amazing cameo appearance in in that movie uh he's always been around he's he's a, a fascinating character in in pop culture um and well well beloved and um, and, and, you know, there's, uh, it's a great and momentous and joyous thing that, is, uh, you know, people are very excited that he's bringing uh, Bill and Ted back with this new movie. Um, and so with all that kind of a great expectation built up around it, you know, my wife and I sat down and watched this movie. And I think, like, the, the key uh, dichotomy you think about this movie is uh, dumbness versus smartness. Um, and because, like, the, the characters ostensibly are not smart, right? I mean, they're described frequently as airheads. They're flunking history um and yet they bring a lot of profundity to the table and like the entryway straight into it is uh uh this kind of discourse around causality um and what really um has influence over events right they're they're trying to figure out like do they need to be great in order to get van halen to join their band or do they need van halen to join their band in order to be great um and the film then spends the next about 90, brisk 90 minutes um, uh, on a meditation on that. And I found all of it, like, you know, really entertaining uh, in kind of the silly jokes that they make, but also in some of the uh, profound that brings into cause and effect in our lives uh, and, and in fiction as well. So, yeah, those are all of my thoughts there. Does that uh, uh, bring anything to the surface for discussion? All of those things. I, I love how there is kind of like a thesis statement or a problem statement at the beginning in this sort of innocuous register. It's like, how will we, do we start, does our band get great and then we attract Van Halen or do we get Van, do we need Van Halen in order to, uh, in order to be great? I just Googled time travel paradoxes while you're, you're talking and there's one, it's the, um, the the one I want is like the letter that no one has delivered. But Pete, what 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 do you think? Do we need Van Halen to make this podcast great, or will will this will we attract Van Halen when this podcast becomes great? So I think one of the propositions. Well, first of all, we should totally get Van Halen on the podcast. But also, um, one of the propositions in the movie is a particular view, not necessarily of history as an object of value in itself, but the usefulness of history, which consists of the lessons that it can teach us about how 
we can make our world better, right? It's it, the, the priorities are, you know, how do we understand the world we currently live in? How do we make our world better and aspire to a better future? And what role does knowing about the past serve in doing so? And the movie seems to come down very strongly on the notion that it is important to know that the people who came before us were people. And because there's a bunch of different purpose statements or, or sort of alternative theses to the Bill and Ted's thesis, which is uh, be excellent to each other and party on dudes, which I want to come back to because I think it's got a little bit to unpack. But uh, some of the other theses are, are sort of, uh, oh, technology, right? Uh, you know, things are bigger, but smaller computers. So do high school football rules, right? Which is also bigger and smaller. But um, or, you know, the, the, the present is great because I'm having a great time. Or like the present is bad because it is unjust. These are all kind of put forward in different reports that the students give that are not Bill and Ted's report. And the thing that Bill and Ted's report does is bring the actual historical figures with their personal vices and affectations and strangeness, which is all played for laughs in a very, very broad way, into the discussion of what history can teach us. So I would say, to answer your question, they do not need to put Van Halen in their band to be great. And they do not need to be great in order to put Van Halen in their band. What they need to recognize is that they are like Van Halen, but earlier in their lives, right? They are like, if they want Van Halen to be in their band, then they need to recognize what Van Halen went through in order to become a great guitar player. Eddie Van Halen we're talking about. There's, of course, other Van Halens. The famous Dutch painter. Uh, no. <laughs> and, and then, and then he they paid, become. He only is known for that one VH with the big with the big circles or the big uh, wings to the side, which I think he did in 1654. And it, it's just a coincidence that the band managed to find it. Uh, it's a long story, but yeah, I, and, I would and then, say. And that, then they yeah. need to become. They find they need to become the Van Halen they want to see in the world. Themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. It's like recognize that Van Halen also at one point was a kid, right? And, and and needed to become good at guitar, and what he did was practice, right? And so, like, yes, you love Van Halen and think he's awesome, but you should recognize that you have a role, too, that's commensurate with Van Halen's role in, in terms of, you know, your relationship to the world. Uh, and and that's, that's sort of like, that's the kind of benevolent intention of this movie it seems to be... You know, this is this is a movie that believes that children are our future, that we should teach them well and let them lead the way. Show us all the beauty they possess inside. Right. Mm. To, to, to slightly modulate our Whitney Houston song of choice, uh, which we, we of course, I think we quoted this one and we've been quoting. I want to dance with somebody for several weeks um, and maybe that'll be a new a new thing. But yeah, yeah, that they need to see. Oh, you know, Socrates liked statements of profundity. So do we. So do soap operas, right? Like, uh, and they and they exaggerate these things for emphasis, right? You know, Joan of Arc also came from a place where women weren't really allowed to be fully physicalized in themselves, right? Like, like she wasn't allowed to be a knight, she wasn't allowed to be a general, she wasn't allowed to do all these things because she was a woman. And then she c- confronts aerobics, and it's like, well, this is sort of what I want, but it's been totally toned down and doesn't doesn't allow me to kind of fully realize my aggression. Um, and it's and then we see that Joan of Arc kind of confronts the same kind of conflicts that we confront, except she does it by like you know spazzing out flash dance style in chainmail in front of a mall aerobics class. <laughs> so it's sort of blown out uh, in order to defang it and make it fun and funny 
um, and you know emphasis through exaggeration. She right? cha- she it, changes it, out of the out of the chain mail. She has the woolen tunic with the cro- <laughs> with the cross on. Yes, that's right. That's so right, that's, that's right. you know I mean, and if you want, so that's your that's your OG. I mean, not your Lululemon whatever. You know your your <laughs> technical technical fabrics, lightweight, breathable, uh, flexible technical fabrics. No knit a uh, knit a woolen nightshirt that goes down <laughs> to your knees. Put an applique cross on the on the front and uh, go do your you know go do your high intensity interval workout uh, with that, and you will be your only set of clothes, and you wear it every day. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hashtag wool life. <laughs> hashtag antimicrobial <laughs> yeah hashtag the dauphin hashtag antimicrobial hashtag wool life hashtag of arc um, but yeah I guess, I, that's how that's what i would propose right is that that is that this has questions of causality that are sort of about coming into yourself kind of causing yourself to be by making choices in the present about what you will be like in the future with relation to the past uh, and and it's this oh are these slacker kids going to amount to anything because for better or for worse the world belongs to these kids uh, right um, now of course the the movie is really other than one really kind of unforgivable slur that should just be bleeped um, the movie is uh, surprisingly inclusive uh, I was I was very pleased right to find that like you know the teacher is a black guy. The council in the future is like a black guy and a woman, right? Like the, uh, the whole community of the future is like all colors and peoples from all over the world. We get a speech, you know, from a young black woman about the kind of social injustice of unequal wealth distribution. These are not the kinds of things you pick up when you see this movie, when you are nine, right? Like, uh, that, that it is in fact, you know, trying to put out there this idea that the future needs to be inclusive of everybody, but for better or for worse, you know, Bill and Ted are the people that are being, discussed here because they're the ones who need to learn right they they obviously oh they're super special and what they do is going to be amazing and change the world and and there's a dimension to that but i think the the reason the underlying reason that it's these people is because that they don't they don't know right they they they're professing this sort of ignorance uh when really they kind of do know like they're smarter than they look uh, but also way dumber than is necessary for survival. So it's kind of a combination. Of but things. it's also, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny. Like there's there are a lot of authority figures in the. Uh, there are a lot of authority figures in the movie, like um, Ted's father, the chief of police, you know, who yes. like, and it's amazing that Ted's father hasn't had an impact on his personality up to this point. But now, <laughs> after 17 years, you know, is going to send him away to military school. But like, this is this is actually see what military school is, is an alternative theory of how you self-actualize, of how you individuate. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. How do you come into your own way? you go to military school and they make him a Colonel Clink or whatever his name is. He makes a man out of you, right? Like, um, the, uh, the, uh, it's not Colonel Clink though, by the way, I think that's Hogan's heroes. (laughs) (laughs) Different, different property. Yeah. Uh, different army, (laughs) (laughs) different IP. Yeah. Um, the, uh, and then, um, Bill's father is, uh, how do you, you know, how do you self-actualize? Well, you date a, uh, you, 
date someone who's just barely graduated from high school or marry her, I guess, because she's the she's the stepmom and you have sex with her inappropriately in your son's room. You make your son leave his room <laughs> so that you can get down with your uh, wife, his stepmom, who was his his high school, uh, not classmate, but um, school coeval uh, like, uh, you know, but two or three years uh, previous. So that's. um yeah, so that's this is also sort of an an uh, you know this is also a uh, an insufficient sort of um, insufficient sort of mode of self self actualizing, and I think that teachers is a little more in the right direction because it involves education, but um, and it involves kind of finding out, it involves kind of a process of discovery. But uh, is also kind of insufficient, as stated, for the purposes of the assignment, which is to take your historical pe- uh, uh, periods, which you know I I gather were like pulled out of a hat or something like, <laughs> or like the Texas State Board of Education or something. Yeah, like, but it's <laughs> a, you know the three, but three, you know their initial ones are like west westward expansion, which is God, <laughs> what a great name for. <laughs> for for that, by the way, um, westward expansion. Uh, wait, what were the other two? Oh, uh, Napoleon, the the Napoleonic Wars, right? Napoleon, and um, what was the third one? Oh, uh, ancient Greece, right? Those are the initial three, I think, and everyone else is. Oh yeah, yeah. It's people who travel over long distances on horseback. Right. Except for the Greeks. Yeah, exactly. You know, famous historical figures like Genghis Khan or Socrates. (laughs) Well, that's you see. And that's that's the but that what you're saying belongs to the bad like um, like a lot of stories. You get a you get a structure where you it's recapitulate. It's sort of stated once the theme is sort of stated once in an insufficient register and then recapitulated in the um in the sufficient register right like so like their uh their first uh statement of this is like i want to thank you for teaching us mr teacher dude uh, i forget the teacher's name but mr teacher dude because you've taught us that you know thanks to great historical figures like genghis khan and socratic method you know History is a righteous tapestry of we we have so much history, right? Yeah. Like, and that's that's actually this is it's, it's like kind going of, to Costco. There's just so much of it, right? <laughs> we have so much. Yeah, I mean, very few items, but a great quantity of each of the items. That's how they, you know, um, it's uh, yeah. The the uh, but the everything about that is wrong, right? It's it's like there. Uh, the the kind of sense of the past versus the future is wrong rather than like we have so much history and it's this like it is this like total accumulation that we carry around with us like the hermit crab like carrying our our shell everywhere uh, rather than like uh, as you say we can become we we have like a great deal of becoming we have a lot of history in front of us um you know which is the the correct um 
point of view, especially when you're 17, you know, to have uh, about your own life and your about your own own ability to self-actualize. And then also there is a there is a great man theory of history. And like because of Socrates, because of great leaders such as, you know, uh, Genghis Khan and Socratic method. And uh, they they sort of eschew the great man theory of history for the great band theory of history. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Thank you. Uh, they uh, <laughs> and good night. That, uh, right, and that there is a you know there is a sense uh, um, right there is a sense in which uh, the um, the whole thing is not like being Bill or Ted is not enough. You have to be Bill and Ted uh, in order to um, you know, in order to uh, accomplish anything or to to kind of self-actualize the thing. I mean, the interesting thing is that like, if you take the little, if you take the little phone booth, um, Oh, did you notice the part where Socrates was like driving a chariot? And I thought, Oh, that's so wonderful. The, the horses are the appetitive part of the soul. And Socrates is the rational part of the soul. And the chariot is like the body. It's like, but if you take the, the phone booth as a little allegory of the soul, a little allegory of the self, right? Like, um, Ted is definitely the appetitive part of the soul. And Bill is, uh, more the intellect. Um, you know, because he is the the smarter one who like uh, is the communications department. He's like the PR department for Bill. And he's Ted. the one who coins the phrase "be excellent to each other," right? He he says "be excellent to each other," and right. Ted says hey, "party on, dudes," right? So I guess that's a great articulation of yeah. appetitive. I haven't known if I know that word, like as in relating to appetites. Yeah, relating to relating to the appetites. Um, yeah, I think that I. I'd have to I'd have to look it up. It's a uh, ancient Greek philosopher where like the two the the soul is a chariot and the two horses are like the the appetites and the charioteer is like the rational part of the soul, you know, controlling the appetites or something. And that like um, you know there is kind of that that there is that in the uh, in the phone in the phone booth. Um, so yeah, that's. Um, you know, I, I mean, it, it, it is interesting, the things, you know, the things that they, the things that they learn. I mean, also, each kind of person that they bring uh, represents a kind of a different mode of attacking um, your enemies, seeing them driven before you and hearing the lamentations of their, no, that's mostly Genghis Khan, <laughs> also Napoleon, but the, maybe a little bit Billy the Kid, but the, uh, of kind of attacking the problem of like how to go about getting, getting things done, you know, like, um, Joan of Arc, the way that Joan of Arc fights a war is different from the way Napoleon fights a war is different from the way kind of Sigmund Freud explains the origins of things, uh, is different from the way Abraham Lincoln, um, you know, fights a war or brings about, uh, brings about the effects. So, so there are a lot of sort of, uh, there are a lot of histories and I am, I am interested, Pete, what did you think of the, what are the implications of the political philosophy of be excellent to each other and party on dudes. Well, before I go into it, Mark, did you want to get in there with something? Uh, No, go for it, Pete. Okay. So it's interesting. Okay. So to each other, take that as one side of this, right? So on the surface, that might be... Let's call it article one. Article one, be excellent to each other. (laughs) Compassion, right? 
the the aspect of to each other means to be generous, to be oriented towards other people rather than strictly towards yourself. It's related to the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If it feels that way, at least. And and it is not merely to be nice, be kind. It's not even be awesome. It's be excellent. And if we look at the end of the movie as the conclusion of Bill and Ted deciding that they're actually going to practice to become a good band, then being excellent to each other means being the best person that you can be to the benefit of other people. And and which then creates, of course, the second half of it, Article 2, and Party On Dudes, which is the mutual enjoyment of the collective excellence of people who are committed to helping each other. And and this is this is this is um, an interesting proposition, right, because it's it's almost religious. It, it, I mean, Bill and Ted are sort of holy fools after a fashion, right? They're uh, they, they're on this mission from God. They've given up all sorts of trappings that other people might might have in, um, might have held on to, such as not wearing their shirts around their waists or or uh, speaking with a with a accent appropriate for their area of inland Southern California. But no, no, no it's um, it's it's that, uh, you know, you they're. The contrast, I I think a lot about the contrast between the woman who gives the speech about Marie Antoinette saying, uh, if Marie Antoinette were alive today, she would say, let them eat fast food. And I'd be like, "Ah, she probably would say, don't cut my head off. Right. Because it's like she's thinking about (laughs) Marie Antoinette and her place in history, not Marie Antoinette as like a person who experienced the things that happened to her and who had vices. Right. And and who uh, and who had friends and all this stuff. And so it's it's a it's a solution on a societal level, but it's in, inextricable from the individual experience of it. It's a value, right? It's saying it's a it's a it's a virtue that you're supposed to be pursuing. But it's sort of both a course of action and an objective in itself. Because if you do party on dudes, right, that means that you know you you give yourself a certain amount of forgiveness for your enjoyment of things. I would say If there's anything about the 80s as they're presented in this movie, the late 80s in Southern California, that's redeeming. And there's a there's a fair amount of it, I think. It's that they have people have created ways to to energize and and experience and 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 arrive at catharsis and satisfaction for your baser mentalities and instincts and human qualities and and in turn vices. Right. Like. You take Napoleon, right? And why is it that Napoleon wants to conquer Europe? You know, destroying untold villages of people, rewriting the entire map and displacing whole nations and, and causing all this chaos and and pain. Well, of course, at the same time, you know, instituting new laws and doing other sorts of things that, that might be seen as constructive and so on and so forth. But why does he need to do this this great war? It's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure puts forward the sort of tongue-in-cheek but not really joking proposition that he just wants to eat the whole ice cream sundae. Right. That like that's he wants to be the Ziggy Piggy. He wants to eat all of it and get the metal that's associated from eating all of it. And that this is a human experience that we can identify primarily with children. Right. That Napoleon is is set in opposition to uh, a child, his own height in this this, of course, you know, emphasis by absurdity. And and the idea is, OK, we build a, a society where, one, we be excellent to each other and Napoleon is not really excellent to other people. And that's a problem. And that's why he doesn't travel with Bill and Ted. And that's why Deacon ditches him, uh, along with why the, uh, 
you know, the, the various balance of power politics united, uh, you know, first, I guess, at the Battle of Leipzig unsuccessfully and then eventually at the Battle of Waterloo to, to dispel Napoleon and such. But uh, and whatnot and other battles and other things, of course. But it's like I'm probably getting my Napoleonic history all wrong. Um, but the point is that Napoleon's impulses that that are sort of that make him shape history are not inhuman. They are relatable. And modern society gives you ways to enjoy them by, for example, creating giant ice cream sundaes that if you want to eat a whole ice cream sundae, you can just eat the whole ice cream sundae. And then you don't have to go kill a whole bunch of people to prove to yourself that you're awesome or to satisfy your greed, right? Um, this is not a popular, I think, social theory. <laughs> the idea that, like, it's really good to have bowling alleys because when somebody throws a fit and curses for uh, while cheating a bunch of children at a bowling alley, at the very least, they're not burned down. Right? <laughs> like, they're not, uh, they're not engaging in some sort of greater, uh, greater mischief. But it's, it's one that does seem to provide useful guidance to people because you can't really discharge the part of yourself at least, you know, I think that this movie would say that has the desire and impulse to do things that might be seen as immoral in a sort of strict sense, in the military school sense, right? Immoral, amoral, selfish, right? Uh, and, and so the notion that partying on dudes, which I think is meant in in this case in a broad way, I think it's a broad formulation of dudes, but it's probably, though in the new movie, they'll probably comment on that and probably change it. Uh, because it's, Bill, uh, Bill and it's, Ted, course, Bill and Ted have daughters in the new movie, yes. and you can tell from the trailer, uh, you know that 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 the daughters go through the first two movies while Bill and Ted are having their adventure. The daughters right. have their own kind of like B plot that basically recapitulates the plot of uh, Bill and Ted. But you know, of course, Bill and Ted have to do their thing because at the end of tonight. Uh, uh, Preston and Logan have to write the song that will save the world. Uh, so obviously, you know, right. um, that means Bill and Ted, right? So the, the <laughs> I mean, the, 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 I just saw this tra- trailer. I thought the tr- twist writes itself. Sorry if you're on full media. Well, we don't blackout, know. I don't know. know what it is in that movie. It could be Sonic the Hedgehog meets bad boys for life for all I know. Right. Uh, it's uh, we'll, we'll find it when we get a chance to watch it. Ooh, we, we, yeah. we run, we run loop the loops together. We collect gold rings together. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, but the long and the short of it is that like, it is, it is a call to be excellent in the sense of excelling. And it is a call to be excellent in the sense of being a person held in high esteem by others because you do well by them. And then it is be excellent to each other because it is social. It is not insular. It is not myopic and self-directed. Uh, it, it is broad and it is it is about community. And then also it's party on dudes because living a good life that is full of pleasures that are mutually enjoyed is a good thing and desirable. Right. Like that. And that this is the sort of proposition. Right. Which is that in a world in the future where an awesome rock and roll band has caused all the planets to align and enabled huge leaps forward in technology through a new achievement of social harmony and various sorts of vaguely hand waved metaphysical things, which I think are just in there to sort of, uh, you know, let you know that, it, that we, we know this is an inadequate explanation for what would happen to the world. Uh, but, you know, uh, this is what the movie is about. So, you know, you're going to have to deal with it. And also, it's a comedy. Right? So we're all going to laugh at it a little bit. But yeah, but that the, the end result is this utopian future. But it's a utopia. It's not a utopian future of like people, although they do sort of walk slowly around in like jumpsuits, but supposedly they're like listening to rock music and having a good time and, and uh, generally enjoying themselves. 
um, while they're also building time machines and making cool sunglasses and stuff like that. Um, and so I think that that's that the discovery of the personages in history and bringing them forward into the present to see how they relate to the present reflects how they have similar dimensions to contemporary humans but because of their circumstance or situation it was it was misdirected in some sort of less constructive way if not misdirected then certainly could not did not have the opportunity that we have now in the present to 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 progress in the way that we have the opportunity to progress um you know billy the kid is presented as kind of a good guy in this movie i'd say unambiguously a good guy in this movie uh, pretty quickly, right? He starts out as a guy who's looking to sort of maybe cheat at cards and is scary and shoots his gun a lot, but he pretty clearly reveals himself to be the sort of tribune of the plebs, right? Who like faces off against tyrannical British monarchial rule as like this sort of hey, you brought a you brought a cowboy to a hanging, um, he's going to rescue this you know rescue these people and take them off on their horse. The notion that like force needs to be applied in the interest of conscience, mm. uh, not just in the interest of, of rules and laws. Um, you know, he's the, he's the sort of rule breaker uh, and the sort of, uh, you know, the outlaw, um, the outlaw impulse. Right. And, and Socrates is kind of this sort of knowledge seeking impulse. Um, and they, of course, are necessary because they have both the courage and curiosity to actually talk to girls at the mall, which Bill and Ted don't have. Right. <laughs> which would be I mean, there's so many little things in this movie where it's like it's just it's just I don't know whether it's on purpose, but it's so beautiful. Right. It's like. Bill is hung up on the fact that this girl that he used to know is married to his dad, which is messed up. But like him and Ted are also both very fixated on Missy. And then they sort of meet these princesses, which is another sort of thing that's kind of hand waved. They don't really get to know them. Uh, They're just sort of this distant object. But having gone through adolescence, you know, as as cis hetero men, I think we're both familiar with the phenomenon, right? Like of like desire not really being processed in a way that kind of is able to comprehend that this is a person. Right. Um, and, and we see Billy, the kid in Socrates able to do the thing that Bill and Ted can't do, which is talk to their peers. Right. Um, you know, we see Beethoven able to do the thing that Bill and Ted can't do. Right. Which is like play music in their town and gather a whole bunch of people around because Beethoven only pays attention to his music. He doesn't pay attention to all the distractions because he's deaf. And, and so there's always that little that kind of pushes it over into absurdity. Right. Like Beethoven will keep playing the piano even when the time traveling phone booth shows up. Right. Because he's deaf and he can't hear it come. Right. And that's the joke. Right. Yeah, so, so while we're, to round this point out here and bring it back to the thesis of the or the, sort of the moral statement of the movie, right? This is uh, partying on dudes, right? The wilding out in the mall, um, yes. In particular, and, and and thank you for pointing that about Beethoven and you know, playing awesome music uh, for other other people's enjoyment. That is, uh, it's meant to be an encapsulation of that, I think. Um, now, now, Genghis Khan, like you know, uh, uh, violently destroying stuff in the mall. I don't, I'm not exactly sure how that fits in, and also, by the way. Billy the Kid discharging a firearm in a public place, um, much more threatening in 2020 than it was in 1989. <laughs> but we'll excuse that, I suppose, because he's a cowboy and, and, it's, and it's whimsical. But um, is that fair to say, Pete, that the yeah. wilding out of the mall is parting on? I would, I would add that as a kid, Genghis Khan was my favorite. Uh, and, and, and I think that I remember vaguely that line where they say, I think we've got a live one here when he's dressed himself up in sporting goods equipment and knocks the head off of a mannequin. I laughed harder at that line than I think I'd laughed at anything up to that point in my life. And it is very difficult for me to understand why, because I'm no longer nine years old. But, but it was like there was just something about Genghis Khan just kind of letting it rip in the mall that that felt 
you know, it's it's the kind of thing where we, we there are many reasons why it makes me cringe now because, you know, he's one of the only people in the group. He's probably the only person in the group who isn't white. Right. And uh, and they don't really. And Dingus kind of, of course, wasn't really like that. But none of these people were really like this. Um, but at the same time, it feels insulting. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. When they yeah. when they go back to to his time and he's like, you know, eating a whole chick, just tearing into a whole chicken leg, but then decides that the woman serving him would be better as dessert like and starts making that with it. like the whole, you know, it's it's not super great. There are there are. Uh, yeah, there are some a couple of representation issues and there are, you know, and as you say, they use a homophobic slur, which is just completely verboten uh, in our yeah. time. But, but you know, I don't know. And also, it's not even a good joke. It's not. It's no, not, oh, no, not at all. Delete it. It wouldn't be a problem. But but the point was that, like, for all of that, as a kid, Genghis Khan was the one I connected with the most, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Right. It's like there is something there to that spirit that that guy has. Now, granted, I also, of course, didn't really understand at all what it meant for him to, like, be with the girl and, and all that other stuff. Um, but there, but I mean, like, it's one of those things where I can intuitively understand, well, I can understand from memory, you know, if you, if you really were totally insulated and didn't understand all the other reasons that this was important to like, say, perhaps you were nine years old, then, uh, then, then the character would resonate with you because you totally identify with somebody who wants to go into a mall, put on a bunch of shoulder pads and helmets and whip around like a lacrosse stick and like knock the heads off all the mannequins. Right. Um, it's, uh, it, it is the partying on dudes. Right. It's the kind of thing where as a child, you would also think it's pretty harmless. Um, You know, like you're not really thinking that that by doing this, you're actually like causing a bunch of property damage or scaring a bunch of people. Like it's just like it's a big playground. Right. It's it's the same mentality as like today's special. Like, oh, we stay at the mall late at night and all everything comes alive. And Corduroy the bear can walk around the store, you know, after dark. And the mall is this kind of magical playground where 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 your true impulses can be exercised in a harmless way. Uh, in a fun way, you know, in a way outside of the kind of purview of of, of parents and whatnot. Yeah. So, Until the yeah, cops yeah. show up. Until the cops show up, and yeah. then they arrest everyone. <laughs> so then that brings us to, I guess this is a uh, good of a time as anyway to segue to the characters getting thrown into jail, and then the key realization in terms of uh, causality in this movie about how to get them out of jail. Mm-hmm. So whatever you care to just kind of like uh, talk through that, and like, and also I'd be curious like to. Once, once we uh, 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 summarize that here, is like put that in our taxonomy of uh, time travel devices, which we are, are fond of referring to. What was it like the Back to the Future model versus uh, what's the other one? Uh, oh man, um, I'm trying to. I mean, there's all there's. We're at the point now with like Looper and Trimmer and stuff where it feels like it's broken down a little bit. But you're saying like the Back to the Future one is when you go back in time and you change things. The world you create a separate timeline and it changes. Yeah, it's certain, um, no, it's like Back to the Future is self healing timeline, isn't it? Because like you don't, uh, yeah, yeah, you don't, yeah, yeah. you don't branch off into another quantum reality when you, uh, right. you know, when you, um, what like uh, get, uh, meet your mom in the past and and she gets a crush on you. Like no, you get. Um, you uh, alter the prime reality because there is only a prime reality. Like in there, then there is also the like the more quantum reality one, which is the like what the Rick and Morty um, timeline theory, where there are sort of infinite infinite realities, um, which you know Rick and Morty obviously uses for bleakness. But uh, but like there th- here, it's sort of like. These, uh, 
it's sort of like nothing matters, you know what well, I mean? Deterministic. Yeah, there's a, there's an inevitability to all of it, yeah. um, which is which is actually interesting because then there's really no stakes, you know, because there's no there's nothing at risk, you know. You can take the princesses out of uh, medieval England, and they can, you know, be. Um, Medieval or kind of early modern, but like you can take them out of their timeline. They don't marry the royal ugly dudes, you know, and instead they they serve as a kind of uh, prize for Bill and Ted to, you know, for successful completion of their. Uh, but they get to be members of the band. Yeah, sure. And, fair they're, and they're co-equal partners. So it's it, for the 80s. It's doing a little better than average. Yeah. <laughs> like <it's, laughs> this is this is not one of the worst offenders in terms of movies. Uh, that you could watch from 1989. That is for sure. You make a, yeah, you, you do make it, you do make an excellent point. And so, but, but my point, you know, my larger point before I started being snarky was that like you can pull them out of their timeline and there isn't like huge knock on effects, you know, Ray Bradbury, a sound of thunder style where stepping on the butterfly means that the English language was never invented or something like that. Right. Like, uh, you know, there, everything, everything is just the same except the hot princesses are in the eighties now. Uh, like, you know, so brandishing this credit is a story, cards. So this is a story being told to Bill and Ted, to extent, right? I, I'm really interested in this idea that has just come up, this notion that there are no stakes because the outcome of what's happening has already been determined because, you know, Ted's dad already doesn't have his keys at the beginning of the movie, right. which means that at the beginning of the movie, you know, Ted has already decided how the prison break is going to go and has already actually you know, set it into motion. Right. Um, and, and this idea that, like, it's not a self-healing timeline. It's a self-reinforcing timeline where Bill and Ted do have this destiny for at least. And again, we're only talking about excellent adventure here. We'll talk about bogus journey in the uh, bonus podcast. But Bill and Ted have this 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 destiny to become greater. This is something that's being told to them in school. Right. This, this is this is also like a, a good attitude to have i think is part part of the claim that the movie is making i think is that it is useful to believe that in the future you can make things can be made better than they are now right and uh have high expectations in general for yourself and for everyone around you yeah that, that if you have high expectations for yourself and for everyone around you then like things will work out to be better but that you don't teach people that causality you teach them that things are going to be better and you hope that they come to the conclusion themselves that they need to be part of it. Right. It's, it's sort of this, this like you get to see the bold future that you could create. Right. And that you do create, no, you do create this thing. It works. Right. You have that sense of, of mastery over it because you know, it's going to happen. Okay. Now I'm going to make it happen. It's kind of the power of faith in, in a sense. Uh, I won't even say in a sense or in a way it's like faith as a virtue, it, the notion that, that putting in the hard work to help other people, in this case, you know, to like also to sort of, you know, take your light out from under a bushel and actualize the talents that you're meant to have will reap benefits down the line, even if it seems absurd, even if it seems hopeless, uh, that that you it's worth it to kind of give it your all and and to believe and hope. 
Um, and and in this case, of course, this is all played for laughs because like Bill and Ted have to be so stupid that they don't recognize that this is the case, right? That like that they discover determinism as sort of a novel, like cool new thing, right? Like, oh yeah, it already happened. Huh, what do you know? Right? Rather than it's like Looper where it's like deeply troubling, right? Like uh <laughs> it's <laughs> where, where where yeah, they hand wave away the uh the complexity of it, but it's mostly tragic. I mean, I guess what I would say, Matt, is, yeah, the stakes are really low and it's a comedy where the the resolution of the comedy has to kind of bring us back to the beginning to an extent. Even though they do change a lot, uh, the, the situation that they're in at the beginning of the movie, as is explained to us by Rufus at the very beginning of the movie, is reaffirmed at the end of the movie. Um, and there's double marriage, sort of, right? So that's kind of fun. That's yeah. <laughs> super, yeah, super Shakespearean. <laughs> and, and to call out the obvious as well, like the movie starts with them screwing around with their guitars, uh, with their video camera in the garage, and it ends with them doing more or less exactly the same thing. I guess it's sort of like if you realize what it is that you need to do, you will have found that you've already done it. It's, it's kind of like uh, this sort of interesting kind of gym teacher. Uh, wisdom, right? It's a whole class of wisdom is gym teacher wisdom, things that you tell people to like make them at, at indoor handball, right? Like, look, you know, <laughs> once you realize how to, once you figure out how to throw the handball, you'll realize you've already been doing it, right? <laughs> like, like there's a special sort of logic to guiding people towards those, through those sorts of things, right? And uh, it doesn't really match up with other sorts of syllogisms, but, you know, it's, it seems like it's helpful to imbue these kids well, with, that, with a I- kind of. Uh, Right. That is it also like they're at it it is of its time, I'll I'll say, because right, that that is uh, a bit of wisdom that's appropriate to a knowledge economy. Right. Where like one of the, you know, um, what's the guy's name? Peter Drucker knowledge work uh, insights is that like job one is figuring out what your job is every single day. Right. And you're a knowledge worker if it's not clear what your job is uh on you know on a daily basis right like it's either sort that of, or you work you play for the philadelphia 76ers but that's a whole other <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> um so like uh you know so like they they are like they're they are part of an economy that is in transition in the 80s and so some of the lessons that they're learning are you know uh historically determined i think or at least are appropriate to their their particular moment in time um not that they're not bad or not true. They're, they're certainly true. And like, uh, but I do find that that is like, that is a kind of modern productivity type of insight. Like, you know, once you know, you know, um, like once you know, once you know what the, you know, I don't know, the, strategy for dealing with the competition is you're already implementing the strategy for dealing with the competition, right? Like that's, that's true. Once you know what cutting down a tree is, you're already cutting down a tree is not true. (laughs) You know, that's, (laughs) and that's, um, and that's the difference between sort of knowledge work and, and, you know, uh, quote unquote real, um, real work right like uh and and it is as as i say it's appropriate that they are you know because they're they're gonna grow up and become software engineering managers or something like that (laughs) that's what we're gonna find in villain ted face the music that they are you know uh that they work for facebook or something (laughs) i don't know man it it does look like that they play at weddings and things like that they're still musicians (laughs) but that would probably be a more a more appropriate ballistic trajectory from where in this movie given that 
given yeah. that that uh, music is so important in the movie, I, I I mean, I'm curious, or at least it's kind of like talked about so much. I'm curious what you guys thought of the music, the soundtrack. I mean, the the whole uh, "Don't worry, they do get better" thing that George Carlin says. Um, you know, is is one thing, but like, I don't know how, how the music is, is used, you know, the future music, like their sort of heavy metal, you know, wild stallions already sort of situates them in a, in a particular discourse drink of like, uh, you know, of, um, horse based, uh, you know, <laughs> a, you know, an equine, an equine discourse, if you will, right. of musical right. excellence. I don't know. Mark, what did you think of the music? So I'll say the obvious thing, right? Which is that, um, uh, the prediction in 1989 that, um, guitar based music would take over the world would be totally understandable given the music landscape of the time. Of course, as we are situated in 2020, we find out that that is definitely not the case, right? With hip hop and R&B being sort of like the predominant ascendant sound of our day. Um, so just put that out there, right? But um, fine, like let's live in the world of this uh, of this movie. Um, the other thing is that while we're you know trying to situate Wild Stallions, you know, amongst uh, you know other theme bands, whether equine or otherwise, like it, it is with the spelling of it is definitely keying into um, intentionally misspelled uh, band names like Led Zeppelin and Def Leppard, right? Or Leonard Skinner, I suppose, as well too. Although like genre-wise, it's not quite exactly there um so all okay so just put those things out there but like i was surprised by uh how non how not important how music was not so important actually uh in the movie um i think uh, in my in my mind in the movie that i was led to, to believe like wild stallions actually had good songs in this and there were sort of more there would be more powerful musical moments right you know with like uh maybe like a big romantic power ballad with the princesses and that sort of thing and and, and none of that was really there and as i'm talking this through here um maybe that was also intentional and that like all of that is potential uh, potential um things left for the future um and that we're kind of left with um uh just kind of okay guitar music um, to underscore the antics of the characters. So that was, that's what I, I thought of the music. Pete, you got anything on that? Yeah, well, it's interesting because there is that pretty blazing kind of keyboard, you know, it's, it's more of a sort of 70s corporate rock Styx-esque, right? Like sort of that sort of operatic rock of Styx blazing version of, uh, it's not for release, but like, what? Oh, what is it? it what is the... What is it that Beethoven plays at the uh, at the mall? Right. Um, yeah, the, yeah. The demo when someone hits demo mode on the on the synthesizer, and yeah, it, it becomes like a Mannheim steamroller, uh, yeah. you know, kind of or like combination of Electric that light orchestra. Yeah, exactly. Like, totally. Like and yeah. slightly like slightly like Wendy Carlosy with uh, like the synthesizers and the um, the classical music, and like yeah, absolutely. It actually is. It's funny. You're you're totally right to locate that about ten or so years. Years before when this movie actually comes out, because that wasn't that wasn't really the stuff at the time, was it? That wasn't really what no. what the what we were listening to. 
Well, what are the top hits of? Was it, you said it came out in 1989 because the movie takes place in 1988, mm-hmm. right? And and it came out in 1989. And so to locate it, what are the what are the number one hits? What was the number one hit on the radio when Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure came out? Because they also talk about Led Zeppelin a lot and Ozzy Osbourne. But Ozzy Osbourne, who also was uh, accused of witchcraft, right, <laughs> for uh, for his or of corrupting the young, like Socrates, right, um, which is just lovely. This is beautiful. Um, so it came out February. This was a February movie. So that shows you the amount of confidence that they had. In it. Uh, it was a February movie that came out in 1989, and the number one hit uh, at the time was uh, "Walking Away" by the Information Society. Uh, oh, there was a Rick Astley song, Lost in Your Eyes by Debbie Gibson, was coming up in the offing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the Information Society. Wow, that seems that sort of like looks Devo-esque um, and related to the stuff that we're talking about somewhat. Um, but obviously they made it before all this happened. But this is a big year for like Paula Abdul and Bobby Brown, Millie Vanilli, right? Uh, you know, this was also uh, Guns N' Roses. This was also... Um, uh, uh, yeah, when um, did GNR lies? Right, is the is the album not, oh, okay. not Appetite for Destruction? Are we like a little bit yeah. after Appetite but, but for looking, Destruction? Appetite yeah, was eighty seven, wasn't it? Yeah, okay, yeah. Cool. yeah, I believe so. Yeah, but I'm looking at the Hot One Hundred list for nineteen eighty nine. Like Poison, Warrant, Bon yeah. Jovi are on this here. So like that that situates things pretty well. Who does get name checked as one of the you know Slippery When Wet is a, is one of Beethoven's favorite albums. Which is which is totally justifiable. That album is is absolutely perfect. In <laughs> <laughs> I love that album. <laughs> according to according to according to Beethoven, the unsurpassed unsurpassable greatest work of of music ever. It's not the, maybe it's not the best Bon Jovi album, but it is the most perfect. They, they do uh, they do like Beethoven's being deaf. They kind of like they play on they like he's deaf when it suits a when it suits a joke, you know. <laughs> Not when, not when it doesn't, you know, um, like how would he, we talk a, sorry, go ahead. Go yeah. Ahead. How would he evaluate, uh, what he's doing on the synthesizer, which presumably he is not familiar with. Um, right. but anyway, can we talk about, Oh, I want to talk a little more about Napoleon yes. because it's like, it's such a, this is one of those movies where there's a huge B plot that if you were to summarize the plot of the movie to someone, you would not even mention Right. And I'm trying to think of other movies that are like this or I mean, it's also a big thing in TV shows and TV episodes where if you were to describe the plot of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure to somebody, you would never say, oh, yeah. And like a third of the movie is given over to to Napoleon Bonaparte hanging out with a bunch of like 14 or 15 year old kids at an ice cream shop in a water park. Right. right? Like, and, uh, and a bowling alley. Right. And it's like there's like multiple scenes and he big presence and and i feel like at this stage in my life uh the napoleon plot really resonates with me more than it did before (laughs) i feel like i understand it better um and and i did allude to the uh the situation with the bowling alley right and and the sort of defanging napoleon by giving him uh venal and harmless things to satisfy his ambition with such as eating a giant uh ice cream bowl but I, i there's a couple of things that i wanted to mention one was that uh, I know it is out there on the Internet as a question people have asked because I found it. Uh, did Napoleon speak English at the time that they abscond with him from history? No, he did not. 
and he learned about 10 years later and he was never good at it. So so it is not necessarily a plot hole in this movie that Napoleon doesn't speak English is perhaps a plot hole that nobody in the entire town speaks French. Uh, or like people just treat him like an alien, but uh, but but definitely it's. I mean that's possible. It's San Dimas, you know. It's not. It's not like Matt. Name a town in Los in uh, Southern California where people would be likely to speak French. Uh, actually, I hear a lot of French like on the streets of Culver City. So there you go. There you go. If it's in Culver City, Napoleon would be fine, right? Um, but, yeah, but, but like, from Culver City, you got to get on the ten and you drive. <laughs> East, and you take either the 210, the 10, or the 60. Now, you're going to get to... What are you doing here, Napoleon Bonaparte? San Dimas. Gateway to San Bernardino. But there's this great moment, which... I loved, and I don't. Again, another moment. I don't know if it's on purpose. The movie is so bonkers that it's that it's probably full of beautiful little discoveries. Where the giant ice cream bowl gets put in front of Napoleon to eat, and they're like, "See, it's ice cream. Like you eat it, right? Like, like you're from another planet. You're from France, from about you know a um, hundred and seventy years ago." Right. But it's like there's there's no concept that he could possibly understand anything that that he's encountering in this environment. And he obliges by acting sort of E.T. ish through the whole thing. This is it's an E.T. thing. Right. It's like yeah. what if E.T. had a really bad attitude problem and, and just like had no problems with revealing himself constantly. But but then Napoleon like like puts his finger in it and he actually asks. and I never picked this up before in French, like, oh, this is ice cream. Right. Because, of course, Napoleon has had ice cream. Right. Like he was the emperor of Paris, you know, emperor of France, you know, had a palace <laughs> like they had ice cream. At the time was not common. Right. Certainly they had things that were ice cream adjacent. He's a man who has a dessert named after him. Right. Like So so it's it's not trivial. But but the, the, the point being that, like, nobody understands that Napoleon knows what ice cream is and eats the whole thing knowing what ice cream is, which I think is a wonderful little thing that also connects that further reinforces this notion that like Napoleon is like us. Um, but I also would love to comment on the water slides because the water slides are so fascinating in this movie, mm. right? It's like it, the, the first time the water slides show up is when uh, I think it's, it's that Ted is talking about what is good about San Dimas, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says that Waterloo's has the most excellent water slides. And this is sort of thought of as something that society should have. And of course, you know, Bill and Ted are the prophets. They're the holy fools who are kind of like that are telling us about what the future should be like. They're the ones who have the idea of the future that needs to be fully actualized. And one of those ideas is that a town ought to have, you know, excellent water slides. Most bodacious water slides. Rufus says it. No, it's not Ted. Rufus says it about San Dimas in the future. That in the future, San Dimas has better water slides. And it's not just it's not just San Dimas. He says that that Earth has better water slides than any civilization that they're in contact with. You know, it it, it just occurs to me as well that the time circuits are look absolutely like water slides. Yes. Right. They're traveling through pipes uh, and having an amazing time doing it. Yeah. So, so like traveling through history is like going through a series of totally excellent water slides. And so Napoleon has this moment when he approaches, of course, the water slides. I don't I never know exactly what the last consonant is, whether it's what, which I guess is typical of French. But it's like, is it water lose? Is it water lose? I guess it's is it a, a possessive? Is it loops? No, I, th- I don't no, know. But- it's it's Waterloo like like oh, okay. like uh, like the Abba song. 
Okay, gotcha. So so the water park, of course, is named after Waterloo, the battle where Napoleon met his Waterloo. Named after the, the Yeah, the Avacon. <laughs> where he had his beef wellington. <laughs> and uh and Napoleon like gets to Waterloo, right? <laughs> so Napoleon has been antagonizing all of the other countries of Europe who are represented by these like fourteen and fifteen year old kids that he's hanging out with who have all decided to ditch him, right? <laughs> and uh and he arrives at, at Waterloo and, and he, he confronts the water slide and he kind of looks into it with this sort of trepidation right and and it's sort of like we know that waterloo is like his downfall right like and uh of course downfall it's a water slide it brings you downward right he's going to jump into it and he's going to have a downfall and he does he jumps in the water into the waterloo and he he has an amazing time going down the water slide such that he like very very vigorously and repeatedly engages in Waterloo over and over and over again, right? Like, which is this sort of wonderful blowout of the idea of what Napoleon is, right? Napoleon is always fighting Waterloo because when we're thinking about Napoleon, we're not necessarily thinking about the real person. We're thinking about, I mean, we're not capable of it. We're thinking about like the stories of him and the kind of historical figure of him. And it's a story we retell over and over again. And, And so like Napoleon has to fight Waterloo, like it's in his nature as Napoleon, right, to fight at Waterloo and to lose and to fall, right? And so then when Napoleon goes to the presentation, <laughs> the report, he talks about the invasion of Russia as this totally awesome idea, which, of course, we all know is doomed to a colossal failure. Um, and he refers to it as a, as a big water slide, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just it's it's so interesting that that the water slides are imbued with this sense of just exalted joy and relish but they also are representations of kind of failure right and so what is it what does it mean for a utopian society to have excellent water slides it does it mean that it's not that you always succeed but it's that in in the in the doing and the failing there's like joy to it there's exaltation i don't know right it's like it's it's a wonderful little ambiguity whether the water slide is a good thing or a bad thing um does everybody go down a water slide at some point in the sense that like you know ozymandias you know turns to dust and whatnot you know dust in the wind um it's better to be on a water slide than to be blown away in the wind as dust right if the the outcome might be the same you end up in in the ocean or whatnot but it's like it's just i just i just was fascinated this time around with like the trepidation around the water slide and napoleon's fixation on it as something that he needed to do but the whole Um, i mean the 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 thing i i sort of like i was kind of jiving with your uh idea of like sublimating all the aggression into ice cream and i feel like there's (laughs) there's a little bit of like children out of the way on the ladder (laughs) sorry well yeah exactly there's that but then like i there is kind of a weird development in that montage where he becomes like you know he becomes a friend to little children like and he's like in a later shot in that same montage he's carrying the girl up the ladder you know uh or up the in the line like and it's like oh this is like enthusiasm that that we can all share because it turns out it is not right like water slide fun is not a commodity of scarcity like we can all have some you know uh and that like there is there is so there is kind of the thing of 
like the kind of the exuberant joy of you know going going on the water slide like just the fun like it's physically fun and adventurous and stuff like that and the you know the same way like if only france had ice cream like there there wouldn't have been the napoleonic wars a little bit it's like oh if only france had water slides you know the the uh you know napoleon would have had the opportunity for sort of physical courage for bravery for you know a lot of things that that would have uh you know saved uh saved all of europe a whole whole load of trouble right um and i was thinking of it in 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 that way kind of rhyming with your uh your kind of sublime ice cream reading um a rather sublimate, yeah. sublimated ice cream reading uh, rather than, that, that, you know, that, be, yeah. Oh, man. So the idea is that, and so I'm thinking about this, I'm revising it, the, Nepo- the water slides are battles. The water slides are downfalls, but they're also, they're battles. And, and the problem with Napoleonic battles is that somebody has to lose. And so when Napoleon gets to the water park, he feels like he's the only one going down the water slide. And initially he's very belligerent and pushes other people out of the way to get to the water slide to do it again. But eventually he realizes that the water slide is fun for everybody. And he wants to take other people with him and help the little children to the water slide. He learns to be excellent to each other and to party on dudes, because what Napoleon is great at doing is kind of endeavoring upon these like huge acts of passion. Right. Which which are like, you know, often misdirected. Right. Uh, but it's like he, he just he has this great hunger uh, for, for ice cream and bowling and and uh, and, uh, and annoying people. But but yeah. That, well, he is French. <laughs> and he thinks the Russia campaign is going to be great for everybody. Right? <laughs> like he thinks it's going to be a wonderful victory and he's really excited. Uh, and so that's the joke. Right. Is that actually you got to go back. It's not really going to work out. <laughs> and like you're, you're going to find out why the water parks named that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I guess you could say that he's going to meet his Waterloo. <laughs> uh, but but I mean, hopefully, I mean, now what you should do, though, is go to your local art museum and see if after watching the movie, that little Ziggy Biggie medal is on his shirt because he would have carried that with him <laughs> in real life. <laughs> oh, yeah. Aren't aren't all decorations of all kinds really just Ziggy Piggy medals that, uh, you know, we all carry around? All right. Uh, I'm I myself am stoked for uh, am stoked for Bill and Ted face the music. I had not been stoked for Bill and Ted face the music, but then I watched this movie and I, my stokedness quotient has increased a great deal. Um, so uh, please join us for that uh, next week. And if you are a member or will become one now uh, at overthinkingit.com slash join, please uh, you know join us this week for our special bonus episode on, uh, on Bill and Ted's bogus journey. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks very much to uh, Mark, Pete, Peter Fenzel and Pete, Mark Lee uh, for joining uh, this podcast and podcasting with me. We will be back with more excellent podcasts next week. Until then, come and visit us on the web at www.everthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a extreme level of scrutiny it
Do you think kids watching this movie recognize that watches used to have to be wound or that watches are a thing that gets worn on your wrist until time? <laughs>